well, good morning, everybody. Uh, before I forget, uh, we do have a children's church today, uh, so children are welcome to go and uh, return um, at a later year when they're a little bit more prepared for worship. So we've heard a lot about mothers, and this is not going to be a Mother's Day sermon. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on um, giving, and I guess the, there is a connection, which is that one of our themes has been that giving to the church is a family activity, and that uh, the church really is spiritually our family. Uh, and that's not just nice words, but that really our church is a uh, spiritual reality uh, uh, is that our church is our family, uh, and our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers are in this congregation. Uh, <clears throat> so this is the last of five sermons, and uh, I'm going to give you like a brief one-sentence summary of the past four sermons, uh, and I'm not going to do them justice, so if you missed some, you can go back and get those off of the web. But in uh, week one, uh, Pastor Matt <clears throat> talked about giving to the church as a family activity, uh, we support uh, people in the church, uh, the, we support the church the way that we support our kids and the way that we support our elderly parents, not because of what we can get out of it, uh, but because they're our family and we're connected. And so one could say the gospel unites us to each other. Uh, so then in week two, uh, Pastor Nauman uh, talked about uh, one reason why we don't give often is that we're afraid we don't have enough left over. Uh, and to take care of our own needs or emergencies. Uh, and so fear can be a, a dominant thing in, in keeping us from giving. Uh, and the gospel removes our fear as we have faith in God to take care of us whatever happens and to give us life in eternity. Uh, in week three, uh, Pastor Joseph talked from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I would say sort of in a nutshell, the Bible uh, tells us that a tight-fisted miser is a pitiful person. Uh, that the gospel leads us to enjoy life and to both give and receive freely. Uh, and then last week, uh, Matt then again talked about uh, the giving as loving future people, uh, that we are not just uh, pleasing ourselves to make things the way we like them, but we're investing uh, in the future. Okay, so that's all sort of uh, groundwork. So um, what I'm going to do today is get down to brass tacks uh, and talk about, well, how much are we talking here? Uh, how much should we be talking about giving? Uh, it's easy for us to say, yeah, you know, I gave a quarter to the church, I'm a giver. Um, uh, well, how much should we give? Well, this takes us right into a, a debatable topic in the church. Uh, this is something there is not, I would say, 100% uh, unity on in the uh, biblical churches. Uh, and the question is basically about the tithe. Uh, so, let me just define this for us. Uh, it's not always necessarily clear to people, so some people may hear that word tithe and just think it means like some kind of gift, uh, bring your tithes and offerings. Uh, but biblically, when one talks about the tithe, you're talking about taking 10% of your income and giving it to the local church. Uh, now, um, I want to hasten to add some things that you've heard in previous sermons. Uh, we're talking about members of the church. We're not talking about uh, people who don't consider themselves part of this church. Uh, so if you're here as a visitor, uh, we're, not, we're not really directing this to you, but you can learn something about uh, how we uh, think about our relationship to each other uh, as members of the church. 
another uh, sort of a, a point to just to reinforce again is we're talking about a voluntary tithe. Uh, no one's ever going to send you a bill. Uh, you know, here's your bill for, you know, we've assessed your income and here's your bill. Uh, we don't do it that way. And actually, uh, the leaders of the church uh, don't even know what you give and have no intention of finding out. Uh, so we're really talking about uh, a completely voluntary thing. On the other hand, when we're talking about giving, uh, we have to talk about brass tacks, about what we really uh, mean in all this. Uh, and so I would imagine, just from <clears throat> what I already said, that some of the people who are members of the church uh, have one of the following three reactions. And you can sort of hear some of the echoes of past sermons uh, in this. Um, so there are going to be potentially some people who would say, how dare those people ask for 10% of my income? Uh, now, if you think about that, what's the premise? It's those people. It's not my people. It's not my family. It's those people are asking for my money. How dare they? Right? And so there's not a sense of connection or unity to the body. There's a sense of those people sort of coming from outside. Right? Um, there's another uh, reaction uh, somebody might have is, uh, that may sound good in principle, but there's no way I could afford that. I can barely make ends meet now. And uh, do you hear the tones of fear in that? Uh, I'm fearful that I just don't have enough. Uh, I will come back at the end of the uh, sermon to talk a little bit about what to do if you really are in financial crisis. Uh, but there is a, there's an undercurrent of fear there. Uh, and lastly, uh, maybe um, there's the attitude of the miser. And um, I'm not going to do justice to a uh, Lord of the Rings uh, impression here, but it's my money. It's my precious. How dare they talk about taking it from me, <laughs> right? Um, do you see yourself maybe in some, of these, in some of these voices in the back of your head? So in some sense, I would say all of those are really addressed by past sermons. I'm going to really just focus in on this one issue of what about this 10% number? Uh, does the Bible really teach that? Uh, and that's going to take us on a big excursion because it really gets to the whole question of how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament. Uh, we have an Old Testament precedent of the tithe, which is very clear. You weighed out your grain. You took 10% of the grain uh, and took it to, uh, to the temple. You took your firstborn animal uh, and you took that in as well. Does the Bible teach that for our era? Uh, does the Bible teach that uh, equivalent, you could say, uh, for the time that we live in? So that brings us to the passage that we have uh, for this morning, which is uh, from the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. Uh, and I'll read this. Uh, and at the end, we uh, have a traditional response in which uh, I will say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and the response is, thanks be to God. So hear the word of God from the prophet Malachi, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, <clears throat> and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, 
against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You were cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, let's, let's unpack this now and see, uh, see if we can understand how to, how to uh, approach this. So this is uh, the prophet Malachi, and the context, not only in this chapter, but uh, in uh, the rest of Malachi as well, is sort of an imagined debate between God and the people of Israel, uh, going back and forth. And sort of words are being put in the mouth uh, of the nation And uh, this passage is a quite famous one, sometimes read at Christmas, uh, because it talks about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, And so we have the very famous verse, uh, which Christians take to refer to John the Baptist, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then it goes on to say, the Lord whom you seek uh, will suddenly come to his temple, which is to say the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Uh, And of course, this is talking about the Messiah, uh, who we teach as Jesus. But then it goes right on into sort of an interesting debate, because it says, well, will you actually be able to stand it when he comes? Can you you endure it? Uh, And you could just take a step back and say, really, if God came in the flesh right now into this room, how would you feel about that? Uh, Would you just rejoice, or would you feel incredibly Uh, threatened. We all have this innate sense that God is our judge, that God will judge the nations uh, at the end of time. And being near to God naturally brings fear of judgment. Uh, And so it's, on the one hand, one might say, oh, wouldn't it be nice uh, to have God show up and do miracles for us? But I think if we take just a second thought about that, it could be an incredibly scary thing to say, who could stand to be in his presence? Uh, We would feel judged. Uh, we would feel afraid of him. Uh, And so this gets at sort of the whole nature of the coming of Jesus. Um, We see two sides uh, of the prophecies talking about the Messiah. Uh, One is the judgment uh, theme, the judgment of the earth, and the other is the suffering servant, the Messiah who will lay down his life uh, for his people. Uh, And as uh, we see in the life of Jesus, he did not come to judge the world at that time, but will come back again uh, to judge the living and the dead in the future. Nevertheless, he had a few choice words for people, right? So he came in a way uh, that was quick to testify, as this passage says. He was quick to testify about the sins of the people. And in the end, they couldn't endure it, right? They put him to death. Um, It was not easy to hear someone testifying about their sins. 
so that takes us into then the whole narrative of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, uh, where we see this sort of ongoing uh, debate going between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were the, uh, the leaders of the Jewish nation at the time. <clears throat> and they're both going back and forth about the proper interpretation of the law. Uh, and although Jesus wasn't sitting on the throne meeting out judgments, uh, he was quite quick to testify, as it says here, uh, about the things uh, that were going, uh, going on. And so that takes us into this question of what was the nature of the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees? And I think a lot of people think that the debate was that Jesus was saying, don't worry about that Old Testament law, I got something totally new here. Uh, and the Pharisees are saying, oh, no, 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 we need to go to the Old Testament law. And that's not the case, actually. Uh, the nature of the debate really had more to do with who has the right to interpret the law, who is properly interpreting the law, and who is improperly interpreting the law. And Jesus comes and says, I have the authority as the Messiah to tell you how to interpret the law, and I'm telling you, you're doing it wrong. You're actually interpreting the law wrongly. Uh, and uh, he's not saying they, are, they should forget the law, but he's actually saying they've missed the point of the whole law of Moses. Uh, they, they've done it wrong. Uh, and so we see that uh, again in this passage here in Malachi. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, in, the, in the passage prophetically, it says here, uh, return to me, which is to say repent. He's saying that you need to repent. And they are saying, we don't need to repent of anything. How could you be saying we need to repent? We're doing it right. Uh, but Jesus is actually saying you're doing it wrong. So in your additional scriptures, uh, there are some other places where Jesus comes into conflict uh, with the Pharisees. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard it said, and everybody knew who said it, uh, the Pharisees, you shall not commit adultery. Right? That's in the law of Moses. But he says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's not, he's not reducing the law. He's actually saying you've made it too easy. You've reduced the call of the law uh, to something that is easy to do, uh, not maybe simple, uh, but you've actually reduced the claims of the law. Uh, then also in your additional scriptures there on page 8, uh, Matthew chapter 23 he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You are blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So is he overturning the principle of the tithe? Is he saying, uh, don't worry about the tithe? He's saying, no, he's saying, you're spending all your thought time on tithing the herbs in your garden, and you're missing the big point. You're missing the big picture <clears throat> of the, what he calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, and then <clears throat> continuing on in Matthew 23, verse 25, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also be clean. So Essentially, the debate here is that Jesus is saying they've actually decreased the call of the law by making it an easier set of laws to follow. Uh, and, and to make the general point, this is really the case for all of us in what can sometimes be called legalism. So when you hear someone being a legalist, 
you may think, well, they're making life harder because they're making all these rules. But actually, the mindset of a legalist is someone who wants to prove that they never do anything wrong. And so they make a very definite set of rules and say, as long as I keep all these rules, then I'm good. And no one can really challenge me and say I'm doing anything wrong. Uh, And by doing so, they've actually reduced the call of the law because the call of the law says that our hearts should be warm toward God and we should be doing over and abundant more. That's not something Jesus made up. It's in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, you missed the point. You missed the whole heart of the law of Moses uh, and you've reduced it to this set. Well, we do the same thing as Christians, right? We say, well, as long as I don't do this, uh, then I'm okay, right? Uh, So, uh, I may, you know, look at certain things on the internet, but I don't look at those things, so, you know, I followed the law. I'm good. Um, and actually, <clears throat> the mentality this all comes out of, which Jesus calls straining at a gnat, uh, is really out of self-justification, of saying that I want to prove that I follow all the rules just good enough. Uh, well, the gospel speaks to this because it says Uh, If you believe that Jesus has atoned for your sins once and for all on the cross, past, present, and future, then I don't actually need to worry about justifying myself. I'm in God's good graces, and I I don't have to sweat about that. Uh, And the response to that is actually not to say, therefore, I don't care about doing good, but the opposite to say, I don't need to worry so exactly about whether I'm, you know, keeping this exact rule or not. I want to follow the spirit of the law. I want to go with what really God wants uh, and not just be about the process of proving that I'm a good person. Uh, so the justification that comes through the gospel frees us from worrying about all the rules, not because we say I don't care about doing good, but because we say I want to actually just actually do good, not just prove that I'm a good person uh, by somebody's standard. Okay, so that is the basic mindset then. We're saying that Jesus is saying the spirit of the law of Moses uh, is not one of legalism, and it never was intended to be uh, by Moses uh, or any of the prophets in the Old Testament. All right, well, with this in mind then, let's turn to the specific issue uh, then of the tithe. Um, God says to the nation of Israel, um, you are robbing me. (coughs) Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Okay, so what was the Old Testament law? The Old Testament law is called the Levitical tithe, uh, 10% of the crops of the harvest, and the firstborn of all the animals of the farm uh, were brought uh, to the priests. Some of this was used to support the priests. Uh, The Levites did not have their own land, and so they used this to live on, Uh, and part of it was used to distribute to the poor. Uh, And so we see in that Old Testament precedent that the tithe is used really for two purposes which continue in the church today, which is the worship of God uh, and caring for the poor. And these are things that the church uh, still is called to uh, in this day. So that was you know, the system that was set up uh, under Israel. Now is Jesus then overturning that? Is he saying, oh, you should give far less? Uh, you know, um, it would, if you've read through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus never Uh, says, don't worry about that. He ups the ante uh, in every case, right? So in your additional scriptures, I put another uh, verse of Jesus. Now, not talking to the Pharisees, but talking to his own followers. This is in Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, uh, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Now, what's really interesting in this passage is he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's almost exactly the same thing he said to a person sometimes called the rich young ruler. Uh, And many Christians look at that passage to the rich young ruler and they say, oh, that was a specific one-time thing he said just to that ruler, it doesn't apply to me. Uh, And there was some things that were specific about that ruler, but here he's saying almost the exact same thing to the general church. Uh, He says, uh, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags, and he clarifies that means building treasure in heaven is giving treasure away in this world. Uh, And then we see that same theme apply again uh, in the uh, second chapter of Acts. So uh, this is also in additional scriptures. The first thing the church did when it was constituted uh, to uh, after uh, the the, um, very famous day of Pentecost, uh, in Acts chapter 24 it says, this is the description of the church. Uh, All who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to any as had need. Do you hear the echoes of that same thing that Jesus said to them? Uh, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day uh, those who were being saved. Uh, So this early church took what Jesus was saying as as applying to them, one could say. Um, So if you look at this passage in second chapter of Acts, the spirit of the people, you just have to say this is not a group of people who is saying, what is technically the minimum level of giving that I can do and still get away with calling myself a Christian? That's just not the spirit of the thing at all, right? That's not how they're thinking. Um, So, In a a nutshell, I would say the spirit of the New Testament is not to say, uh, let's forget about the law of Moses uh, altogether. It's rather to say, let's recover the heart of the law of Moses without being caught up in legalistic uh, rule keeping. Uh, And you notice in the sermon, I'm not going to say whether you should tithe on net or gross or anything like that, because that would just get us right back into that whole pharisaical approach, right, of what's the exact, what number are we actually exactly talking about here? But the spirit of the New Testament is always a motion from shadow to fullness, from the lesser to the greater, uh, from that which is partial to that which is now poured out. Uh, And so when Jesus talks about the spirit of the law, hey, thanks, Uh, when Jesus talks about the spirit of the law, he's talking about the Holy Spirit who comes in the New Testament, the same spirit of God, now being poured out. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out, he does more, right? He doesn't do less uh, in all these things. So, let me just sum that up then uh, with a few sort of thought processes here. The spirit of the New Testament uh, of those who are in Christ doesn't say, well, I'm technically not committing adultery by doing this. It says, how can I honor and respect all women in my life, and and my wife, sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, the legalist says, technically I'm in the clear, right? The one whose heart has changed says, how can I bless and overflow blessing to other people, and especially women in this context? Um, The heart of of Christ doesn't say, um, you know, I hate all these people, 
But technically, I'm a good person because I'm not actually harming them, right? It says, let me love people abundantly. Uh, I'm a sinner just like they are. Let me be abundantly patient with them. Again, it's not just, what's the minimum I need to do to not harm people? But it's how can I pour out uh, blessing? In the same way, uh, the New Testament spirit doesn't say, how can I look religious to people while keeping as much of my money to myself as I can? Right? It says, how can I bless everyone around me with what the Lord has given me? Let me see if I can even go above the tithe. Uh, so technically, I would say, <clears throat> you know, uh, I'm not going to say there's a particular standard of the tithe, <clears throat> uh, 10%, net or gross, whatever. But I'm going to say the spirit of the law, the spirit of Christ, is to go above it, uh, to say, how can I abundantly bless? And so if you're not above it, probably a good start is to go to it, uh, however you want to do that computation. Uh, and then where does the passage of Malachi go with all that then? <clears throat> um, the passage of Malachi doesn't say, you know what, my goal uh, is to make all of you miserable with how much poverty you're in, so I'm going to take even 10% more away from you so you can be more miserable. Right? That's, not the, that's not the spirit of the passage, right? Um, this is what he says. He says, put me to the test. If I will not <clears throat> open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing upon you, uh, and I will, um, uh, what does he say here, the vine in your field shall not fail to bear. Uh, that's a whole other sermon on alcohol, right? Uh, and uh, the nations will call you blessed, uh, and you'll be a land of delight. The picture here <clears throat> is that God wants what I would call a blessed community. Um, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is not people saying, I'm miserable, but at least I'm obeying the law. Uh, it's rather, I've used this uh, illustration many a time, it's a party to which everyone's invited, and everybody has something to bring. Uh, and everybody is pouring out uh, blessing on everyone else. So if you read that second chapter of Acts passage, it's a spirit of joy. It's like a party that's not ending. Everybody is sharing and nobody is in need because everybody is sharing and there's a sense of blessedness. Now, I do want to hasten to add, <clears throat> um, there is a, uh, really, I would call it a heresy, a false teaching that has gone around the church, especially in the last couple decades, uh, called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel people will sometimes look at this passage and they'll say, this is like an investment strategy. Uh, so if you give to God uh, X amount, then God will give you personally like double that much back, right? And so what a deal, right? Uh, you know, you just put this money into the church and then, you know, just like a, the best interest in the world, you just get it right back. Um, that is not what this passage is saying. Uh, it is not saying that this is a great sort of selfish investment strategy for uh, padding your, your nest. Um, and one way I think where they really go wrong, the prosperity gospel people, <clears throat> is they take this as sort of an individual thing when all of the yous in this passage are plural yous. Uh, so it's a you all uh, if you're from the South or a you uns if you're from Pittsburgh, right? Uh, it's a plural you. It's saying you all should test me because you all will be blessed uh, if you all are generous. <clears throat> and so uh, it might be you're a more of a giver than a receiver, and that's great, but you all will be blessed in the community uh, as you all are uh, abundantly generous uh, and radically generous, one might even say. <clears throat> and so uh, really the theme of this 
is not to say, you know, let me add another burden on, but to say, when this happens, the nation, the community, uh, will be a blessed community when everybody is abundantly sharing and generous uh, with each other. Um, so that's my basic principle. I'm just going to finish up with four really quick <coughs> uh, details. Um, <coughs> the first is simply, uh, we recognize uh, that some of you are in very difficult financial situations. Um, and we certainly would not want someone to like go into unmanageable debt uh, in order to tithe or give to the church. Uh, but it doesn't just end there. What we would say is, if you find you are routinely unable to tithe, then uh, you probably need to talk to the deacons. We have a board of deacons in this church who love to help people get their finances in order. Uh, and if you are out of control in your finances, uh, then that, that means, again, don't view this as an individualistic thing. Ask for help. Uh, it may be that you need to accept uh, money given to you from the church. Uh, or it may be that you just need to rearrange some things and have an outside person look at that and help you see where you might be spending things in a, in a, a bad way and have some wisdom as to how to, how to rearrange that. <clears throat> but in general, although we say, you know, we don't, uh, as leaders, want to know what you're giving, uh, the deacons, one of the things that they do is help people with finances. Uh, and if you're perpetually in financial crisis, this is not a good thing, and you shouldn't view that as your own problem, you should view that as I can ask the leaders of this church for help, and they would love to help me. Uh, and so don't view it, again, as a me and my thing having to give my money away to the church and there's no help coming back, but be willing to be on the receiving end, uh, in some cases, of what the church can help you with. Uh, and there's numerous people, there's a whole network of people in this church who are uh, happy to help you out, as we heard from Hannah this morning. Uh, now there's a, a, another point I would just make quickly, which is uh, one called the idea of prudence. Um, you know, I said over and above the tithe is a good principle, but at the same time, taking care of your retirement, taking care of your children, in general, you do have to make financial decisions about what is prudent and responsible uh, for the responsibilities that you've been given. Uh, but in general, the principle is not, let me take care of every desire and want that I have in my family and then anything that's left over uh, is you know, something I might give to the church. But it's rather to say, actually, to some degree, uh, I may deny myself things that I might actually want because I view myself as part of this community and I, I want to bless others more than I want uh, my particular uh, uh, goals or my kids' goals. Uh, and so, yes, we have a lot of individual freedom to do a lot of financial decisions on our own, uh, but our thinking should be motivated by not just let me maximize my own happiness and then whatever's kind of the crumbs left over goes to the church, but to say, am I really all in in this church? Is this my people, my family, uh, or is it not? Uh, third uh, sort of detail point, um, why the local church? Some people among us might be saying, well, I'm giving 2% to the church and I'm giving 4% to this mission agency and I'm giving you know, another percent to this other uh, nonprofit NGO or something. Uh, and those can all be very good things, but in general, there isn't a hard and fast rule about that. But I would say we live in an age of con artists and there are a lot of agencies out there that would love to take your money. Uh, and uh, people have found very bad investments. And one of the reasons why the local church is important is because 
We have leaders you can go and talk to and say, you know, this thing in the budget, where is that going to? Uh, you know, and or is this a good place? We have a missions committee that you know is very careful to vet. Are these real missionaries or are these fake missionaries? You know, is the money going for something that's really well spent uh, or is it not? Uh, and of course, you have a voice in all of this uh, as a member of the church. But in general, when you look again at the community precedent of the Old Testament, uh, we have a call to live locally and to love locally, to be part of a community. Uh, and if all we do is go on the internet and fracture our money spending in a million different directions, it's kind of like, again, like we're atomized. We're not really part of a community uh, of people that's an actual family. Uh, we're just sort of sitting behind a screen, sending a you know, few, bill, few bills here uh, and there. Okay, so lastly, I just want to finish with this. Um, <clears throat> for some of you, this may be just like radically unbelievable, right? Like you're talking about 10, 10%, not a tenth of a tenth. Uh, uh, it is a radical thing that we're talking about, uh, radical generosity. Uh, and maybe for some of you, uh, the starting point is actually <clears throat> not to get too technical about uh, the numbers, but just to cultivate in your heart a spirit of generosity uh, and a spirit of open-handedness. And um, one of the ways to do that is again in Acts chapter two, uh, which is to simply practice hospitality. And some of you, who've been in the church for a while, no, no, they couldn't avoid bringing that one in, right? Um, really, honestly, uh, more than us looking at the finance budget and saying, what is the average giving our, of our community, I would be far happier to see this be a community that looked like the chapter of Acts, chapter, second chapter of Acts community, <clears throat> where um, it was a community where people are constantly having parties, uh, and every week you're like, oh, I don't know which party to decide between because there's so many parties going on that I'm invited to. Uh, and that happens when you start having parties and you start saying, uh, you know, let me have a party and, uh, and you know, it's going to cost me something to have a party. Uh, it's going to cost me some time. It's going to cost me some money to get all the stuff. Uh, but that's okay because I love being a blessing to other people. Uh, and so uh, we've talked about the, that before, about being an open community in which we are... Uh, actually in each other's homes on a regular basis. Uh, we're actually aware of problems like Hannah was talking about in each other's lives because we actually spend time with each other uh, and we're actually willing to put our stuff where our mouth is and say, if there's a need, you know, let me actually uh, try to, to help out with that. Uh, so, you know, the thing I want to leave you with then is what Malachi leaves us with, uh, which is that glorious picture <clears throat> in which he says, will I not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. And all the nations will call you blessed, and you will be a land of delight. Wouldn't that, that's my vision for city reform. And I feel like sec, the second chapter of Acts is a, is a foretaste of that, right? It's the church actually doing that. Uh, and uh, I don't concede any territory. I think we can do that here. I think we can be that at city reformed, uh, no matter what's going on in the outer world. So let me uh, close this in prayer. <clears throat>